Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, or what's left with it, left of it, uh, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have the experience you need on your side. When something goes wrong, they know the law inside and out and will explain every detail without legal jargon so you feel comfortable and fully understand your situation. They know how the system works and have expertise and resources to continue standing up for clients on matters where others may give up. Find out more by visiting their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday. Uh, and apologies, obviously, this is this is coming in on a Monday morning. Um, we just had a bit of a challenge with uh, this week's guest. It was a bit crook. Um, we had to, and obviously we're doing this uh, with the challenge of different time zones. So those windows to record sometimes can um, be a bit uh, of a challenge. But anyway, we got there in the end and we want to make sure we got this episode out to you guys. Um, so the, the, the episode, these episodes dive into the progressive campaign issues uh, of the day and people leading them from home and abroad. And obviously I said it abroad, today we go, we're going back to Dublin the land of my fathers. We haven't chatted to David Kitching. He's been on the show before. We had him on the show in March where he talked about the complexities of Brexit and how that impacts uh, the Good Friday Agreement and the border between uh, Ireland and the six counties and the border between uh, the relationship between England, or sorry, Britain and Ireland and the relationship between uh, the six counties and, and Britain. Uh, we're back on the show today just to talk about the, what's going on in the UK um, it's been chaos for the last six or seven months and uh, I thought I'd get Dave on to have a bit of a yak about um, all the things that happen in the UK. Also to note that uh, this Thursday we're recording our first of four weekly episodes uh, to unpack the week that was in the Victorian state election campaign and I'm going to be joined by uh, the uh, executive director for Per Capita, the progressive think tank, uh, Emma Dawson, and the former federal member for Batman and a former um, party secretary here in Victoria for the Labor Party, David Feeney. Um, you'll recall in the lead up to the federal election, I had those two wonderful people on the show each week to unpack the federal election campaign. Well, we're going to do it all again, but we're going to do it for the Victorian state election, which is on Saturday, the 26th of November. It's not far away at all. So each week, David... Emma and myself will basically go through what happened that week in terms of where the leaders went, uh, in terms of campaign announcements, uh, in terms of you know campaign materials like ads, um, uh, polls, you know if there are debates, how do they go? If there are campaign launches, how do they go? What are we learning from all the sort of the, the colour and movement of the political campaign, uh, as well as the media, how are they covering it as well? Um, so look forward to doing those episodes with the guys again. Um, so look out for that. They'll be out every Friday morning, um, uh, all the way up until election day. Plus we'll do one after election day as well. We'll do a sort of a post campaign wrap. Um, and I think we'll also do another campaign uh, episode where we go through all of the key, uh, battleground seats that Labor needs to hold, 
uh, or pick up new ones uh, in order to uh, get to 45 seats that ensures that they have another four years of government in Victoria. So look out for that next week. Looking forward to, um, sorry, this week, looking forward to um, recording that first of four episodes with Emma and David. And if you like the show, don't forget to give us five stars on Apple Podcast and on Spotify when you're done listening to today's episode or leave us a review on Apple Podcast. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Sunday evening uh, on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Um, podcast on a Sunday, um, on the Sabbath. That's how committed we are to uh, getting you guys uh, the best uh uh, topics and conversations from around the world. Joining me on the line from Dublin, actually speaking around the world, uh, we've had him on the show before. He's the managing director for Baseline Strategies, which is a consultancy on campaigns and advocacy. He's also the chair of the international section of the Labor Party in Ireland. David Kitching, uh, Fulcher Arash to uh, Social Democratic. Good morning, Stephen. Good to see you again. Absolutely. Now, the last time I saw you, um, I think uh, you and I were having a pint in Keo's uh, in, uh, in Dublin on a glorious Sunday afternoon uh, over the summer. Yeah, the sun really came out for us that day. It was uh, good to see you in person as well, finally. It was indeed. Uh, probably had one too many pints from memory because I think I had a bit of a... <laughs> we had meetings early Monday morning and I don't think I was as uh, sharp as I needed to be. But anyway, it's great to have you back on the show uh, once again, we're going to, uh, the last time you were on the show, we kind of really talked about Irish politics and the border and um, the relationship with the UK and, and it was a great chat. And I think you and I actually then spoke for about another hour after we finished recording. And I wanted to get you back on the show this time to talk about UK politics. Um, obviously, a lot has happened uh, in the last couple of months um, and we haven't had a chance to go back to the UK and have a bit of an um, analysis of what's going on politically. I actually like the idea of having an Irishman come on and talk about UK politics as opposed to the other way around and they get British people to talk about Irish politics. So uh, let's um, talk about our former colonial masters and uh, what they're up to and how they're really fucking it up. Um, so um, let's dive in because there's so much to cover um, since we last spoke. You know, the Tories have now had three leaders within a year. Um, this follows sort of a growing line of resignations from from the the prime ministership of the British government. Um, you know, David Cameron resigned after Brexit in 2016. Theresa May resigned three years later. Boris Johnson resigned following a string of controversies, and then we've had uh, Truss uh, resign, who was in the job for like less than 50, 50 days. It, the Great Resignation. I knew that was applying to people working in sort of transient jobs, but I didn't think it was going to be for the, also the top job in, in Britain. Can we go back to the resignation of Johnson, Boris Johnson, first of all, in the first place? Because he has his landslide victory against Jeremy Corbyn. And you kind of got the impression at that moment that the Tories were settled in and locked in for at least two terms with him at the helm. What the hell happened in which we see Boris Johnson have to resign? Yeah, it's, it's been pretty bizarre, to be honest. You're watching from any vantage point, from talking to people within the UK or looking from the point of view of you know someone in Ireland or within the European Union trying to seek a, a serious partner and you know I, I kind of couldn't believe when I looked back at when we had our previous conversation it, that was just the end of March it, I thought it was much longer ago before I looked uh, because so much has happened since then and I remember saying to you at the time that you know we don't have a serious partner in the UK 
uh, if, if you'd spoken to me two years before that, that would have been the case as well. And it, it, it has just gone from bad to worse. You know, we, even going back to like David Cameron started all of this, uh, where he had presented himself as this kind of liberal conservative who was, you know, was a centralizing force, but he never had the guts to face down the far right of his party. And then he was followed by you know, Theresa May, who, you know, presented herself as kind of a, a nice and more serious face of it, but a lot of her political standing was pretty vacuous. Um, you know, and she also, you know, she had options. She could have gone for a, a less extreme version of Brexit. Um, it, it, the um, Customs Union and Signal Market were still on the table, but she also decided to kowtow to the far right of the party. And she came out with this kind of these kind of empty phrases like red, white, and blue Brexit, and she was just floundering. And she was all, she was never going to keep them happy, but she was always a prisoner to them. And ultimately, you had Boris Johnson in the wings, just ha- having his fun. You know, he's not a he's not a serious person, but he's effective at certain things, um, at, at you know, at disruption, at causing trouble, and serving himself. And ultimately, he managed to get himself into into number ten Downing Street. Um, you know, and and at a time when you know the, the pandemic hit and it masked a lot of the worst effects of Brexit in terms of the impact on the economy, so he's able to hide behind that for a while while doing atrocious damage in terms of the health of the British population. You know, the the manner in which he administered the lockdowns, the chaos around it, um. Yeah, so going from that huge landslide victory in 2019, where he managed to break through for Tories in areas where they never really had a footprint, and the extent to which he let people down, and the the emergence of kind of stories of corruption in terms of how how deals were struck for supplies of uh, personal protective equipment, um, the, the mismanagement of the economy and of various schemes intended to stimulate it, um. The, the kind of callous treatment of of healthcare workers and of of patients within the hospital there's already he had already set the scene you know whereby you know he'd lost a huge amount of trust and then the story the, the, the frivolous stuff starts happening but in a really serious context so the the idea that they were always constantly on the you know, constantly partying in number 10 while other people were being told to stay at home like it just sounded like they were they were mostly on the lash, mm. you know what? While running, while holding serious office, and you know he's constant stories of like of people messing things up because they were at a party. Like even going, this this stayed on until Liz Truss's time. There's a story going around about you know her wanting a blow dry before uh, an appearance or, or before a meeting she was due to have in this in in New York. And the aide that was tasked with organising a hairdresser to come to her her hotel room had forgotten because he'd gone on the lash in New York and was seen hugging a toilet bowl. And you're, like you're dealing with like college students who hold high office effectively, and that's not being fair to college students. <laughs> uh, uh, so so it's it, it's a really bizarre vista because yeah. They'd always present held themselves up, but like the, the British Conservatives, I mean, as the sensible party, as the uh, as natural inheritors of of the right to govern and all of this, 
it's all based on such flimsy self-serving rhetoric really because you you, you see the like they believe their own lies they believe their own rubbish and it, it's really strange to watch this and you know looking at Liz Truss you know like I, I got married just a few weeks ago and in another couple of weeks I'll have been married longer than she was prime minister Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> but it, it, it's a really strange thing. It, it doesn't feel like I've been married that long. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, it, it, it's, it's really strange to watch all this. And that kind of fixed-term parliament act they brought in some years ago as well had been hugely damaging because in any normal circumstance, they would have gone for an election by now. So, I mean, that's interesting. Right? So Johnson resigns, leaving yeah. this leadership vacuum to fill. And the options available to the Tory party, the party of government, would be to either find a consensus candidate uh, in which there is no need to have a, a ballot or get it in the path of having a ballot which requires the entire membership to vote on, which takes time. They've obviously opted. They can't find a, I'm assuming they can't find a consensus candidate. They opt for this, um, this, uh, the, this latter having a, a massive election across their membership, uh, which creates a sort of uncertainty for a long time who the hell's running the, the, the country while they're trying to sort their shit out and have an election. Um, talk to us about the internal fault lines inside the Conservative Party that saw them go down this path of an internal ballot as opposed to seeking a consensus uh, candidate. Yeah, um, I, I suppose you know, the first-past-the-post electoral system, it, it really masks a lot of undercurrents within, with, within both main parties, to be honest. Um, you know, in, in a in a continental European democracy, or or in Ireland for that matter, um, the Tory Party, would, the Conservatives, would be two or three parties, really, and so would the Labour Party. To, you know, where you'd have probably your traditional Social Democratic centre left party, and you'd have you know, a more a, you know, a more left of centre socialist party. Um, yeah, you know, I suppose, I suppose if you're to compare the you know, Corbyn and Starmer. Mm. Represent other entity in the in the Tories. It's more complicated again. Um, so yeah, you have the more the, the traditionalist one Tory grouping, which ultimately Johnson's um, leadership pushed it aside. But they're they're the more centrist. Uh, try to try to be more inclusive. There's a sense of paternalism in them, a bit of no, noblesse oblige, but um, they don't tend to be overly radical. They're more more, more pragmatic. Um, then you you have this kind of um, you know very aggressive neoliberal element who it, you know, represented by what Liz Truss tried to do. Um, you know very much oriented around supply side economics. Um, you know belief in deregulation and low taxation as a way to stimulate the economy. Um, you have the more ultra-nationalist grouping um, and, and you know, in you know, they would be some of them quite, quite similar to the UK Independence Party or the Brexit Party in their orientation um, you know, often verging on on xenophobic in terms of rhetoric um, you've seen that recently in the likes of Suella Braverman the Home Secretary and her, her whole discourse around immigration very aggressive um, nationalist um, and you know, obviously very Eurosceptic uh, both the, um, the 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 trust kind of Thatcherite or supply side economics grouping and the the latter more nationalistic uh, set they they both tend to be quite Eurosceptic for for different but overlapping reasons. 
you know, they, they, they want they want to be free of the, the the regulation of the European Union, but they also don't like the multilateralism it represents and the, po- the kind of pooling of sovereignty. Um, so, you know, in, in a yeah, in a continental European democracy, it would be very hard for all of those to sit together in one party because of what the voting system means that you have to form these pre-made coalitions within the party and it's hard to get around that so it means when you've got one grouping in the ascendant um, a leader might try and have others represented in the cabinet or they might just decide to go go full on and serve their own interests at their own ideological base talk us through then so trust comes from this neoliberal wing of the uh, conservative party Um, she nominates as one of the candidates um and she runs against uh, uh sunak um where does he hail from in terms of his um um internal um grouping within the party yeah so sunak is like i'm still trying to figure sunak out at a lot of, a lot of levels but he 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 voted for for brexit he supported brexit and you know he he went along with with all of that and he was a you know, he was chancellor under Boris Johnson. Now Johnson, in terms of you know those kind of wings, Johnson's just a more cynical populist, and there is a large grouping of them too, who will do what what it takes to to, to attain power. Um, Sunak managed to cultivate a reputation of being more sensible and competent, and it, you know in a more maybe traditional conservative uh, framework. Now, whether that is the case is not quite clear to me yet. Um, you know, it's, you know the classic thing of if you get a reputation for waking early in the morning, you can sleep in the rest of your life. And he, he's he's possibly cultivated a good narrative for himself, but then he presided over some pretty shambolic, um, you know, outcomes while while chancellor. You know, a lot, a lot of those deals that went for the provision of equipment or particular services. Or, um, you know, had had a very detrimental effect. Or you know, there was um there was one for example, eat out to help out, where they tried to stimulate the service economy. You, you know the uh, kind of food, the hospitality industry, but it also caused the pandemic, caused the coronavirus to spread a lot more quickly than it would have otherwise. Um yeah, so he he's had things backfire on him, but hasn't managed to stick to him to the same degree. And then. If you look at the the race between himself and Liz Truss, um, just what just a couple of months ago, really, um, he 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 did play a more sensible game than she did in terms of his approach to the economy and to how 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 they would in, in terms of what where they would stand. But she was far more ideological, and that that appealed, of course, to the Tory membership, who would be inherently more ideological than the broader population. When it comes to Brexit and relations with the EU, um, it's harder to say. So, like I said, he he supported Brexit ostensibly, but he hadn't been hugely vocal about it previously. Um, but then, you know, in 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 the kind of run sheet you sent over, um, there, there was this um one piece on him pulling out of COP twenty seven, um, and at the same time he. Is is having a, a separate discussion in Buckingham Palace with with King Charles you know, related to climate change. So this would make me wonder what is where does he stand when it comes to multilateralism? 
you know, he ha- he hasn't been overly vocal on, on what he wants to do when it comes to the European Union um, and the Northern Ireland Protocol and any kind of subsequent arrangements. But he's also he's also pulling in, um, you know, from British involvement in significant multilateral movements and organisations. He also, you know, if you look at some some of his some of the people he's picked for the cabinet, like the idea that he picked someone like Suella Braverman as Home Secretary after she had resigned in the last week of the of the Truss administration because of violation the ministerial code, and she's also someone who's aggressively um, anti-immigrant in her rhetoric. Um, yeah, I would say dangerously so, to be quite honest, because it sets a sets a precedent that normalizes uh, kind of nasty xenophobic rhetoric. Um, so I'm not quite sure whether Sunak is is such a known quantity. We we know his background in terms of his career. And, you know, he's um career in Goldman Sachs. He's he he is for the first time the fa- you know the the family in in Ten Downing Street is wealthier than the than the royal family. You know, it. it you're talking about enormous, like plutocratic level wealth, um, but yeah, as, as a politician, he's yeah, he's cultivated an image for confidence and being sensible and being the one who tried to rein Boris Johnson in and uh, being the one who, who who wasn't held on by held on to by Liz Truss because he didn't adhere to her kind of you know, ideological zealotry, but you know, and I suppose the proof will be in the pudding as to how he plays out. So going back a little bit, why did Liz Liz Truss win the election um, uh, for the leadership of the Conservative Party over Sunak? Well, she was able to appeal to a particular ideological trend that still remains popular within within the Conservative membership. And um, you know, she had she had started this um, I think it was a free trade group or something like that, or yeah, a free enterprise group. Um, Back in I think twenty ten or twenty eleven, and a lot of uh, a lot of MPs were members of it. It, it. it was couched as a Thatcherite group, and there's a good degree of nostalgia amongst a lot of conservatives as to uh, how Margaret Thatcher ran her government and what she did in terms of um, shifting U- UK society and the economy. Um, it's, it's, so she she played to that particular kind kind of base and. She, uh, you know, she she ran a highly ideological campaign. However, when it came to actually Im- to actual implementation, yeah, you know, she she and her, her well her first uh, chancellor Quasi Quartang, who only lasted you know, a few weeks really, um, you, you know, they were implementing tax cuts on the wealthy, which are funded through borrowing. Now, you know, that kind of thing eventually makes conservatives nervous you know because it's it there's there's no kind of cohesive justification for that like the from an ideological base now i don't agree with it firstly but from their point of view there's a logic in lowering taxation because i think it'll overall stimulate the economy um you know and but to do that through borrowing and through increasing the over overall cost of the exchequer that's not very recognisably conservative either, and it 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 spooked the markets and you know and and the bond yields, and it it very rapidly had an impact on 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 people's pocketbook. It, it increased interest rates on mortgages very quickly. It, you know, you had you had the 
you had the government doing one thing and the Bank of England doing another, and at, at odds. I just it just all looked like chaos. It looked like incompetence, and an effort to fulfil an, an an ideological desire that had no basis in anything pragmatic. I mean, talk about that. Yeah, you mentioned the Bank of England there. They stepped in. Talk about the what they did, why they needed to do it, and how significant that was and, and the impact yeah. it had on ultimate leadership. Well, it was, it was just, it's a really strange thing when you see Bank of England trying to calm markets that are being disrupted by, by, by governmental intervention. And, yeah, so, so from, uh, from voters' point of view, from markets' point of view, it just looked it just looked like chaos and i can't think of the exact name of the term is it the moron dividend or the more there's the, the, something that they talk about within financial services that you know is, is ultimately based on the response of the markets to someone doing something stupid and like the idea that 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 can happen within a few weeks of your premiership is pretty terrifying you know when when, when you think about how much effort somebody goes through in a career to reach that pinnacle of of, of politics to, to hold that office and within a few within a few weeks all of the adults in the room end up having to intervene so that you don't you, you, so that you don't kind of spill your breakfast on yourself it, it's um yeah no it was, it was pretty like alarming to watch what the bit i didn't i mean as i said to you before we started recording i mean i i been a bit busy in my own life and I really haven't had a chance to yeah. really deep dive into it. So I'm super interested when I'm asking these questions, I'm actually asking these questions because I don't, I don't know the answer to these questions. Why did she not see it out? Why did she just fall on, horse, fall on her sword? What happened within the party that she sort of said, I can't, I can't sustain this because she's elected by the membership. Now, yeah. if I was a, if I was a member of the conservative party uh, caucus and I was trying to agitate for change, if I was Liz Truss, I'd say back to them, well, I've got the mandate from our membership and you can get as many numbers as you like in caucus, but it's the people that voted for me. So if you want to roll me, you're going to have to get the, you know, you're going to have to get enough votes in caucus to then have a spill of the leadership and everyone vote again. And sometimes that can be a, a hurdle too big to climb for someone within caucus, right? So well, I don't understand why she didn't lean on that and try and hold out. What happened that she just went, oh, you know what? I'm done. Yeah, it, it, it's um, it's a funny kind of setup they have within their party. So, you know, because she had that uh, support from the membership, um, in in theory they couldn't have uh, you couldn't have a confidence vote in her for I think something like eighteen months. Um, however, such was the degree of worry in terms of the effect that she and the chancellor were having on the economy. That um, it it got the the MP spooked, and it if there comes a point where people are not willing to work with you any longer, she no matter what, she still needs the, the parliamentary party to be able to work with her and people to be willing to serve as a minister. And so, th- there had already been letters of concern written to the chair of the nineteen twenty two committee, which represents backbenchers, but also. Um, and resignation started to come in and yeah there was quite a funny thing that was going around during the week you've you've seen the thick of it i presume um love it love it yeah yeah um there was um there was a a a snippet from that that was going around that um malcolm tucker talking to one of the ministers you know in the back of the car 
yeah, yeah, yeah. So where where he goes, you know, you're not going to get you're not going to get sacked after a week. Yeah, he's like, if you get sacked after a year, it looks like you messed up. If you get sacked after a week, it looks like the PM messed up. And the the fact that she was, you know, within a within a few weeks, she had to sack Quasi Quarteng, even though she had signed off on on the on the mini budget that he had put in place and it very much reflected her perspective too and he was he's one of her closest friends in politics until that point and yes yeah, so that she threw him under the bus and appointed Jeremy Hunt who who still remains chancellor under Rishi Sunak and is seen again as a more a, you know a more sensible politician than Party Quarteng now it's all relative because Hunt has had his own problems but um she already had to do that and roll back on her ambitious plans. And then other kind of other things started happening. So Suella Braverman um, was caught out for violating the ministerial code. She'd basically been breaking confidentiality rules of cabinet. She was emailing backbench MP and a backbench MP um, through a Gmail account. Uh, yes, details that happened at cabinet. And um, she made a mistake where she emailed the wrong person who was an assistant of another MP, and then it all got out. Always happens. Always. Yeah, happens. yeah, yeah. And she got a so, so she ultimately had to resign too. But she also, in her letter of resignation, she gave a scathing message as to the chaos and the mess that was going on. I was just it was it was starting to just chip away at her and at Listros. I mean. And you had Michael Gove uh, coming out against the mini budget, saying that this is not something that's recognisably conservative. Wait, like, like I was saying earlier, when you have to borrow to fund tax cuts, you, you, you can't make any justification for that, and still consider the Conservatives to be this kind of sensible party of government. So all all of these elements worked against her, um, and effectively, when the other MPs were no longer willing to work with her. Uh, on, on that basis, she decided to finally fall on her sword, and she was fairly unapologetic um, in terms of how she approached this. She uh, she just basically said that she no longer has the ability to to deliver the mandate on which she was elected. She didn't question the mandate, and th- this kind of untested ideological approach that has finally been tested and, and failed abominably. Didn't question that. She still was quite uh, holding to her guns on that. Um, she just basically said that, yeah, her, her party wouldn't work with her any longer on this. And she just moved on. And, um, yeah, Sunak came in shortly thereafter. There, after, there was a little bit of will he, won't he about a couple, of, and will she, won't she about a couple of others. Uh, uh, Boris Johnson uh, was talked about as potentially running again for leadership. And Penny Mordaunt, um ultimately they both pulled out before it came to a proper race and they weren't really going to get they weren't getting enough um nominations anyway to be able to to be able to run but in the end so that just was was handed the leadership okay so i see he's announced his uh cabinet and it appears to be very much a boys club despite uh the uh the scrutiny the last administration faced on that particular issue um i think one in five ministers are women what type of leader do we expect Sunak to be? Yeah, uh, yes, I suppose there was a good good deal of discussion around the the, the representation and d- diversity of his of his cabinet. 
Um, Sunak, uh, yeah, like you were saying, just one in five are, are women, and uh, they have been in you know significant offices of state, but yeah, at the same time, you know, in 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 twenty twenty two, it's pretty poor showing. Um, that, that that that's I think seven out of the out of the total of thirty one. Um, the, in terms of ethnic diversity, um, something like sixteen percent of the cabinet are from the from BAME communities, uh, which is slightly higher than the than the broader population. And you know it is significant. I you know that for the, for the first time, someone someone from Indian background is prime minister from 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 Hindu faith as well. Um, and that's and David, yeah, that, David for the Australian uh, audience, you might need to um, explain the acronym that you just mentioned. Oh yeah, so um, it's, it's, it's uh, Black Asian Minority Ethnic Communities, mm. um, and um, it, yeah, so that that has been significant. Um, there are a few other indicators as to the representativeness of of his um, of his cabinet. Now, the 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 majority of the cabinet were privately educated. Uh, I think so, just over fifty two percent or something like that. Now that compares to seven percent of the overall population, and even within that, um, you know, a, a very significant portion of the the male ministers within that went to Eton. And then a huge amount of them, in terms of the third level education, went to Oxford or Cambridge. So you're taking a pretty narrow portion of the population, and it's something that has been an issue over many years in in UK politics. The the dominance of particular, uh, particularly Oxford's uh, politics, philosophy, and economics course, and the, the the number of people in in high office or in advisory roles who've come from that specific uh, course is sort of reflective of that, that kind of finishing school that people talk about in France, like the the, the Ecole Nationale Administrative. Um it 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 sort of served as a proxy for that within the UK. But it also it, you know, and while the quality of instruction and education might be really high, if the if if the pool you're drawing from is that narrow, it can create issues in terms of um blind spots with regard to what people are dealing with outside of those those milieu. Um, so you know he's um so in so in terms of that kind the kind of um government he's going to run, I would be concerned it would be pretty out of touch. And even well, you know, Boris Johnson obviously also went to Eton and and Oxford. Um, he at least talked a big game on leveling up and um on, on making inroads amongst like the what they call yeah. The, Red Wall constituencies in the in the north of England, um, the representativeness of of Sunak's cabinet there there are very few from the northeast. Um, there it, it, from northeast constituencies, from London. I don't think there are any MPs from London in the cabinet. Um, yeah, so it's it, it's pretty narrow. Um, south and southeast of England, cabinet in terms of its representation as well. Uh, so regionally and in, in class and education terms, it's very narrow. Um, it's about very few women compared to the what, what you would expect in twenty twenty two. It's uh, it, it's done okay on ter- ter- in terms of broader ethnic representation, and made some inroads there. 
Uh, but I, yeah, I would worry that the uh, the economic and regional focus will be quite narrow. Then sticking with that question about the economy, um, you know, I think we're all of us looking at the UK at the moment economically. It looks like a basket case. When I was there yeah. in the summer, if um, if Heathrow Airport is a, a metaphor for the UK economy, then it's a <laughs> it's in a world of trouble. What uh, what do we what what are we getting from uh, Sunak's uh, embryonic days as a leader in terms of the way that he seeks to repair the, the the UK economy going forward in this sort of this continual post Brexit kind of where the hell are we kind of like this, remember Johnson was talking about you know creating Singapore on the Thames yeah yeah, I mean, yeah is this dream still happening I mean where are they like what, what where do you think Sunak's going to take them. Yeah, like so far, he's he's uh, trying to just retake the narrative after the chaos of the Truss experiment. Um, so he, he he's prioritizing stability. Um, he wants to look like he's reli- a reliable, sensible prime minister, and effectively avoid spooking the markets. You know, and so so that that seems to be the immediate focus. What where I would have concern now is that that what that will mean. And what it will take to, for, especially from a conservative prime minister's perspective, what what it will take to pacify the markets, I would be very concerned, especially for more deprived communities in the UK, that this is going to mean Osborne Mark Two, where you're going to have aggressive austerity, and we know the communities that will affect most, uh, and and will affect first. Um, Sunak already has some form from when he was Chancellor of, of the Exchequer. In terms of, uh, you know, he was he, there was a recording found of him speaking in Tunbridge Wells in Kent, which would be you know fairly conservative constituency, um, looking at how he changed the rules on certain types of public funding that would shift it from deprived urban areas towards constituencies like like Tunbridge Wells, so basically constituencies that were um more conservative voting and you know, more well healed. Um, so he he already has a he has some form in, in in that anyway. He doesn't seem to believe in a particularly generous welfare state, and he's there's possibly a, a degree of moral judgment in terms of how he approaches that. Um, but but the narrative he's creating is one of just being a sensible guy who isn't a total mess like like Johnson or Truss. So as as the saying goes, like. You know, Johnson was feckless, Truss was reckless, and he's just trying to be an antidote to that. Look, it's interesting to think about some of the immediate challenges on top of the economic challenge that you've just spoken about, um, and it, it, some of it's domestic and some of it's regional. Um, obviously, the relationship that Britain ha- has now with, with Europe, um, continental Europe, also the challenge that he will face now because there is – strong agitation by the Scottish nationalists to have another referendum on whether or not Scotland will remain a part of the, the um, United Kingdom. And then he's got a problem on the Irish Sea in terms of the protocol as well. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before, like he's not even going to go to COP um, in Egypt in, um, in, in next, um, this, this month or next month. Um, what do you get a sense from him in terms of how he's going to approach some of those issues that I've just raised, either Europe, Scotland, or the north yeah um so on on europe first um i would have a concern and 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 i don't know if cop is representative of this but if he's pulling away from 
coherent multilateral engagement. That is, to me, a signal that we have something to worry about in all of these other areas too. Um, because if, you, if it's something that, like, you, you can't address climate action concerns without coordination and without multilateralism and, and collaboration. Um, so if he's pulling away from that and just having the UK do its own thing, um, it, it already already shows a, a, a lack of a commitment to actually dealing with it in a meaningful way. Um, with the EU, you know, again, he, he just hasn't been clear enough like, on, on where he stands and what he wants to do in terms of the relationship. You know, if he's going to continue with the narrative that he's done so in, in, in economic terms of being the sensible guy who just wants to calm everything down, that might translate into how he approaches the EU and just wants to get on with things. Um, he hasn't been hugely vocal in in terms of where he wants, where he stands and on how, what the agreement should follow. When it comes to Northern Ireland, um, he's maintained Chris Heaton Harris as the Northern Ireland Secretary. Um, now, you know, the, the kind of sideshow to what's what's been happening within the Conservative Party is that you know, for for some months now, there's been a failure to form. Um, an executive in Northern Ireland. There were assembly elections some months ago and Sinn Féin emerged as the largest party uh, for the first time. And following that, the DUP has been refusing to engage in terms of their obligations to set up an executive. The DUP is, for your listeners, the Democratic Unionist Party. So they're the largest party of of unionism. Um, they, but, but you know, They've had a very problematic role since 2016 and before when it comes to, to, to how they've been engaged with the Tories around Brexit. Um, you know, they, they've played a sort of a spoiler role. They campaigned for something that was really detrimental to Northern Ireland, um, both, to both communities, by the way. They really sold a lot of their own voters down the Swanee. Um, and now they're refusing to play ball in terms of their obligations under the Good Friday Agreement to participate in the executive. Now, there are a few ways of looking at it. The you know, One is that um, they don't want to serve under a, a Sinn Féin first minister. Um, but their justification for it is that until the Northern Ireland Protocol has been fixed from their point of view, um, they... They, they will not participate in any in any executive. Um, this was about to precipitate a new assembly election in Northern Ireland. It was going to take place in December. Now, Chris Eaton Harris, the Northern Ireland Secretary, has intervened and he's postponed that. And they, they may bring in legislation that allows for a little bit more breathing space, uh, because otherwise there would have to be an election by mid-January at, at least, or at the latest. Um, so he's trying to create some breathing space um, it's possibly it's showing a degree of pragmatism w- w- within at least w- within the Northern Ireland office as to how they should approach this. That they're they're not just um, uh, they're not just kowtowing to what the Democratic Unionist Party wants, which is which had been a problem under Theresa May and under Johnson. Um, what's been interesting as well within the Northern Ireland office is the mood music. So I mentioned earlier Steve Baker. He's a junior minister in the Northern Ireland office now. Um, but prior to that, and he was, he was appointed by Liz Truss, but he was maintained by Sunak. Prior to that, Steve Baker, he 
was a leading light in the European Research Group, which is a, a very influential uh, Eurosceptic group within the Conservative Party. And he's always been one of the most aggressive Brexiteers um, within the Conservatives. He, he always sort of held the leaders' feet to the fire in terms of them having to satisfy Brexiteers' needs. And, and, and his, has historically been very aggressive. Um, as soon as he was appointed to that, to that office, he began speaking in very, very different terms. He issued a very heartfelt apology to Ireland, to the European Union, about how he had often showed a lack of understanding of the dynamics within Northern Ireland and, uh, and of all that was at play. Um, and you know, so it was, it was a very interesting moment because he was not someone who's considered a, a very reflective person, but it's not just the content, but also the tone. And he really where's this, trying, where's this come from, Dave? I don't know. Like, like maybe he, he, like he clearly is a very ideological person, but I guess when you see the impact of the Good Friday Agreement on the, on the ground and the kind of suffering that it, it, it helped to eliminate in Northern Ireland, um, you know, for a long time, you know, a, a lot of the discourse within Britain, you know, I, I lived in London when the Brexit referendum happened, they didn't talk about Ireland or Northern Ireland at all. It just didn't feature. When someone brought it up, it, it was considered a sideshow. Oh, don't, let, let's not distract from the real issues. But it always was going to be the real issue. It was obvious to anyone who grew up on this side of the Irish Sea. Um, so they, they didn't want uh, Northern Ireland to get in the way of their broader British nationalist dream of, of, of securing their version of sovereignty and so-called independence from the European Union. Um, but I guess when he's given responsibility for uh, you know, a role within the Northern Ireland office, I guess, in, in, to be fair to him, I guess he's taken that seriously and realised that he does have a responsibility to try and uphold the, the peace that has been brought with the Good Friday Agreement and, and not and not to stir the pot so much. Um, so, you know, and I, I, I heard an interview recently with um, another, you know, a colleague of his who was kind of floundering because he'd been, he'd spoken on both sides of the Brexit debate so, so many times. And he, he described, um, he, he, he described Steve Baker as a reflective person or, yeah, it's very sincere, and the implication was that the person speaking himself was not so sincere. But um, may, maybe there is a degree of sincerity, in spite. Of, like he's he's clearly he's a, he's a radical Brexiteer, and he he's, he's a, you know, a British Unionist or like a, a you know a nationalist in those terms. Um, but I guess there may be a, a degree of sincerity in terms of actually trying to help the situation. And of Scotland, what uh, what have we sort of seen from the SNP in terms of the new uh, new prime minister, the relationship um, um, that Nicola Sturgeon is forging with the new government? Um, they're obviously very adamant to wanting to have a referendum as soon as they possibly can. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, like from, from their point of view, it, it has really gone from bad to worse. Um, you know, like they yeah, they didn't manage to make it over the line in terms of the the. Ref- their first go at an independence referendum and you know that that was uh, in a way that you know david cameron's government uh winning that referendum probably emboldened him to think that he he read the public well enough when it came to the brexit one as well um 
but every move within Westminster ever since then has has just made things more and more anxiety inducing north of the border in Scotland. Um, you know, because they're being dragged, they're dragged out of the European Union when a significant majority of them voted to stay, um, and then you know when it co- comes to the the machinations of the British government, you know, around COVID nineteen, around you know, Liz Truss's economic adventurism uh, that you know, even though it only lasted you know a month and a half, uh, it's it still leaves a legacy and it, and it, it has has a damaging effect on. On all of the regions within the UK, even if there is a degree of autonomy that the Scottish Parliament has, um, you know how things will play out internally in Scotland. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to say because we've had these occasional surges of, you know, you know, a few years ago the Scottish Tories managed to make some inroads and Labour have been significantly weakened, but we don't know how things will play out in, in the long run because you know as polling nationally kind of shows these very various surges in labor and reductions in, in the conservatives um it's a very volatile situation and there may be some constituencies when where labor can make some comebacks but it won't be significant enough to be a game changer either um so yeah there's a lot going on there and it's very kind of hard to um it, it, it's very hard to predict you know, whether they will be given an opportunity because again you know, Truss and Johnson had said they would not be willing to endorse a referendum. Um, I haven't heard Sunak comment on this yet, um, but usually when it comes to deal, dealing with the Tory electorate, with, I mean the, the membership, they, they would usually take a unionist position. So I, I don't know will they be given that opportunity the way they were under Cameron's premiership, um, but I, I, can't, I can't see them pulling back from advocating for it for a while there. I mean, it's certainly the, uh, if I was Sunak and I allowed another refer- <laughs> referendum to occur, geez, you think that the, the SNP or the nationalists would be uh, red hot to probably win this one. I mean, if I was the SNP or the nationalist campaign, I'd run a campaign based on, you know, vote to join the bigger union, you know I mean? I yeah, yeah, that- yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, anecdotally thinking about my family Back in Scotland, um, you know, the younger members of my clan uh, all voted to leave mm-hmm. um, the the union. Um, maybe some of the older ones were a bit more cautious on that kind of stuff. But even yeah, now, yeah. they're flipped as well. And they're like, Westminster's a basket case. And yeah. we'd rather either go on our own and stuff it up ourselves or go on our own and actually join, you know, go back in and join the European Union again. So it's an interesting thing for, for Sunak to sort of negotiate. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're very politically pragmatic, getting rid of all of those seats makes it so much harder for the Labour Party to get back in as well. Yeah, it does. It, it, it's, it's, I suppose it's two separate views of pragmatism, isn't it? You know, so like you can, you can secure well, you know, a, a strong Tory representation for the foreseeable or you could be viewed as the Prime Minister who finally gave up the union. Well, the union. Yeah, you know, and that, that, that's that's probably not where you want to be seen in the history books either, if, especially if you're a conservative. Um, we're, in this, we're in this post-Trump era now because anything is possible. Yeah, Any yeah. crazy idea really can get floated and probably be run with, right? I don't oh, think everyone would yeah. leave the Brit- I don't think we ever thought Britain would leave uh, the European Union in the first place, but here we are. Yeah, and like the the dynamics within Scotland, uh, you know, they can change too, you know, like the, the SNP has been in the ascendant for, for so long now. And that, that 
comes with with problems eventually too. You know, there there the, there will be things that they mess up in terms of the in terms of regional government, um, and there can be a level of fatigue that sets in. Now, also, you know, I suppose with the independence referendum, one thing one thing I found really interesting back then was um, the kind of the, the potential swing vote, which was you know, which is essentially Labour voting Catholics in Scotland, um, were a really interesting swing vote, um, because historically they had often voted against independence. Uh, because they, they felt better protected in a broader um in, in the broader UK. Um but that kind of sectarian mindset have has vastly moved on and it's not really a, a, an issue anymore. So so it, it got close because more of those previously Labour voting Catholic background voters are were, are willing and were willing to consider independence. And that's only increasing in the years since. Yeah, and that, that when you talk, when you say uh, protection, David, for our uh, audiences that are not uh, familiar with internal Scottish cultural and political uh, uh, divides, um, obviously there's a, a bit of a there's been histor- historical tensions between the Scots Presbyterian establishment and I guess my, my, the Irish diaspora, the, um, which is you know my family, Donnellys and Mullins and yeah. everyone else uh, that li- sort of settled in the west of Scotland. Um, let's quickly turn before we wrap up uh, to talk about uh, Sir Keir Starmer, the leader yeah. of the Labour Party. The Labour Party must be. I had John McTinnon on the show. I can't remember when. At some stage this year, and we were sort of talking. In fact, he was out in Australia and earlier in the year, and we caught up for dinner. And I was sort of saying, well, you know, how do you think Labor's doing, and what are their chances? And he was at that time thinking, well, you know. In the next election, they can go close. They can eat back or get win back a lot of those seats that they lost um, under uh, Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, and then be in a position for the election after that to you know get back in, or maybe best chance minority government with maybe an SNP, Lib Dems, whatever. But looking yeah. at the polling now, um, even going back as far as when Johnson was leader, um, Labor's polling well. And now I'm just pull up my notes again. The, the the current polls, the YouGov poll that was in late October has Labor on fifty one percent, the Conservatives on twenty three, Lib Dems on nine. I mean, these are good numbers for Keir and and, and Labor folks. Yeah, they they are. It's it's it, yeah, it's not like anything I've seen before, in, especially in the UK system. Um, you know, it's it, one thing that I, I have a little bit of a discomfort in terms of. You know, making any assumptions off the back of it now because they're they're, they're soft figures. Like they're you know they're based on utter chaos under Johnson and a different type of utter chaos under Truss. Um, so it's hard to know what will happen now. Um, I worry that Starmer is not telling his own story or telling Labour's own story enough. Um, from what what I'm seeing strategically is that a lot of what what he's doing is just defining him against something else so he's against the kind of the the chaos of johnson the kind of fecklessness and incompetence and he he's he's a person of integrity and, and competence uh, in, in in as a, as an antidote to that he's a kind of sensible guy in response to the zealotry and the the ideal ideological you know mess that um, that trust has created and even within the party that he's the he's the guy who's not Corbyn, um, yeah, you know, like he need he, I I would worry that, you know, if Sunak manages to 
satisfy certain needs within that kind of persuadable population in the middle that Starmer might not know where to where where to go with this and if you're just going around triangulating based on where you think the population is at vis-a-vis somebody else um i i i think it's just risky um in the long run um i i would like to see him tell his story and and have a stance because otherwise he'll start to look slippery um he's he's got quite a compelling personal story you know and you wouldn't think it from the way they present him um he he's a you know guy from working class background worked his way up doing very some some very impressive legal work in the human rights sector and then has worked his way up to be head of the crown prosecution service service at a pretty young age uh, and you know went into politics for the right reasons he's he's done a lot he's really had quite an impressive career in in law and politics um and, and yet we're dealing a lot with just the sensible guy who's not Johnson, who's not Truss, who's not Corbyn, who's not Sunak. Um, I, 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 I think the public needs to see more of who he is, and it, it hasn't always been helped by, you know, he's occasionally spoken out of both sides of his mouth on particular issues. Happened on, you know, with regard to Brexit, you know, he was the one who moved the the, the Labour Party under Corbyn. He moved them away from an outright Brexit supporting position but then as leader himself he's ruled out turning back the tide on Brexit um he he got caught out recently as well on uh, on giving two different versions of his uh, positioning on 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 transgender issues um and you know in terms of how 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 those rights are upheld or or administered um he you know and, and then I think there's been a, probably a lack of leadership um, it, when it comes when it comes to discourse around immigration as well. So I mem- mentioned earlier the very kind of coarse discourse coming from the Conservative Party, in particular Suella Braverman, uh, the kind of terminology she's using towards people trying to come to the UK has been frankly disgusting. Um, and the Labour Party hasn't been that strong in terms of countering that. It's been it's been often indulgent and um so so i think that there's a need for the labor party to have its narrative and be clear about it and not just defined defined against what it is not i guess if i can put a counter argument to you on that one and i, I certainly agree with you, the, the 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 broader point you're trying to make about getting your story out i mean we talk about this in this podcast a lot in terms of public narrative and public leadership um but you know, the, there's that old campaign adage: never interrupt your enemies when they're completely fucking up. I think that's the quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, verbatim. Um, you know, even if you were to try and put your story out, geez, you'd be struggling from a communication strategy to have any success right now because the journalists would be just so obsessed with the insanity of what's going on inside the Conservative Party. Yeah, well, like, look, that that is that is true. Yeah, and uh, you know, the um, yeah, don't interrupt your enemies has you know that that has been working pretty well but when they're faced with someone who's less of a known quantity as uh, like, like Sunak in terms of like like you, you can't describe Sunak in the same terms as you could with Johnson like he's not when he's not the same kind of party animal who just has you know he, 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 he just looks feckless and, and, and reckless he he so, so that that means you're getting to a point where if if you're just being 
if the presentation of the Labour leader under the, the Prime Ministership of Truss is that he's the sensible guy, who, you know, who is competent, etc. Um, but you're faced with a Prime Minister who's also presenting himself as sensible and competent. Like it's 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 not a great story to tell. Where you know you're 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 coming down to an eventual election, where you're just going, who's the more sensible and who's the more competent, and on whose terms? Because if if the the, the sensible competence that he has cultivated in terms of an image, it, it it's sometimes defined in relatively conservative terms because Truss and Johnson were making such a mess of. of of the economy and of managing government and society, even on their own standard, on conservative standards. So, so he's trying to move into that area where I, I've become more interested in recent times on the the dynamics of persuasion, um, and the the idea that you know you you don't kind of just just try to go to where you think the public might be at because the public moves as well. Is the idea that you actually appeal and show a level of leadership. And I worry that you know, it, is, it is incumbent upon a Labour Party to show leadership on those areas where, um, especially where the Conservatives have been messing up, but also areas where, like, as a movement, Labour has a responsibility uh, to, 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 to those communities who are, who are getting left behind or who are discriminated against. And if they're being a little bit indulgent on you know, kind of xenophobic attacks that that, that the Tories are engaging in and not calling them out on it, or are trying to talk tough on immigration, or not following through on the, the kind of provision of resources and opportunities in, in working class communities, or, or not being honest about what a disaster Brexit is, and, and especially this version of it that they're indulging. And they have to show leadership too. And, you know, I understand that there's maybe a tendency to think that, oh, it's let's just keep going where we're going but what what happens when you get into power um you know and, and then you actually want to do all of these things and you haven't told the public you haven't brought them with you from a campaigning base i yeah i just i, I worry that there's a potential for a, a, another loss of trust um and you know they have really talented people within the labor front bench and starmer himself is very talented I don't know if they're doing enough to let us all know that, and uh, especially people within the UK, but like also the rest of us outside. Um, he's kind of been a little bit unclear when it comes to issues around Northern Ireland too, and the, the like. Johnson had been trying to put together an amnesty for British soldiers, um, you know, who had been engaging in human rights abuses or shot people in in Northern Ireland and else. Well, it's it was, it was, it was also linked to you know what's happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but you know, um, Starmer has been pretty kind of supportive of that those kind of measures as well. He hasn't really engaged that substantively on uh, on Northern Ireland yet. He's kind of taken it, you know. Whereas, like the Conservatives have been, the the Conservatives have not been objective though they're supposed to be as a government in terms of being even handed between the nationalist and unionist communities in Northern Ireland. And previous Labour governments had been very good on that and they, they, they'd upheld their side of the bargain. Starmer has kind of floundered a bit too. And I, I, just, I just kind of worry that it's may, there's maybe 
I, I don't know if it's a, a dynamic of what, what handler they're doing or what kind of advice he's getting where, where, where people think it's very clever to triangulate like that without showing leadership. And I, I, I think that you know, politics is polarised and coarsened to such a degree you kind of need to show a degree of honesty and you, you, and you need to show leadership, especially in a Labour Party. Here, here. And on that, we do, uh, are in, we are in furious uh, agreement. And at some point, yes, uh, Keir and his uh, leadership, he's going to have to front up and actually sort of define who he is and what, uh, what, he's, what, what, what he values and what he wants for Britain. Uh, David, once again, Gaurav Milamahagat for coming on the show. Uh, it's been great to see you and we appreciate uh, your insights into what's going on in the UK. It's not easy to unpack the chaos that has been the last couple of months. Um, so we really value your time. Um, and hopefully the next time we catch up, it won't be over uh, Zoom, but it might be face-to-face, maybe having a pint in Kios. Yeah, that would be great. Come back anytime. It's great to see you. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on.